0: Morning, everybody. Uh, If you don't know me, my name is Mark Newman. Um, My family and I have been at this church, Creekside, about 10, 11 years. Um, And super privileged this morning just to be able to come and have a conversation with you uh, from the Word. Uh, If you missed last week, you missed Jake's introduction, which was really nicely done, into where we're headed now, which is a study of the Lord's Prayer. So we're going to work our way through that. So the instruction. From Jesus to us on how to pray. Um, I was giving him a little bit of grief because he said he only, he only had four words to preach on, our Father in heaven. Uh, I didn't hear a lot on in heaven, so he literally filled 30 minutes on two words. So I hope you ate a good breakfast because I've got 16 words to preach on this morning. So. Um, I think we eat again at 4.30, so it should give us a, enough time to get to the party um, as we work our way through this. But let, let's pray before we get started. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the work that it does on our hearts and in our lives. I thank you for the instruction you gave us on how to come to you in prayer. God, I thank you for the work that it's done on my life in convicting my own heart, especially in just in this area of forgiveness. Um, And I know you've got something for us uh, today, and we just give that all to you. Uh, We praise you uh, for the work that you're doing in our hearts through your word. Um, In the name of Jesus, amen. 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 All right, so I've got the yellow to work with. Uh, By the time we're done, hopefully you'll see how the two are connected. Uh, If that doesn't happen, Steve picked the break, so so you can take that up with him. If it never actually connects, not with me. but if you look at those words, I want you to look in for a second and just find all the words that have to do with thankfulness, like being thankful to God. We know that's part of our prayer life, right, is, is giving thanks to God, and certainly Jesus models that, but you don't find that here. My point being that Jesus is pretty selective about what he puts in the Lord's Prayer, right? It's this condensed, like, model that we can follow for our prayers, and this line, hallowed be your name, You'll find in both versions. So he gives the Lord's Prayer where we're working through in Matthew, which is part of the, this larger sermon that he gave, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, maybe some of his most famous uh, words. Um, and then again in Luke, same thing. And this line and that one's a little more condensed, but you'll still find this line uh, in both. And I think it's good instruction for us and good to reflect on as you pray, like, do you do this? Like, do we uplift the name of the Lord in our prayers in the way that we're praying? But before we get to that, let's unpack that a little bit just in terms of what the words actually mean. Like, why does he say, hallowed be your name, instead of, like, just God? What, what Your name, like, what does that mean? Certainly, if we uplift the name of Jesus, we don't feel like we're uplifting every gentleman with the name of Jesus on earth, right? Same name. It's not about the words, right? It's about, it's about him and the personhood of God that we're uplifting in our prayers and by the way that we live our lives, right? So you could think of that as... I think one definition I saw said, the totality of the attributes and the works of God. And I think a good way to think about that is just the reputation, right? Hallowed be, we want to uplift the reputation of our God that we serve. And then we get to this other word that, has anyone in their entire life outside of the Lord's Prayer used the word hallowed? Um, I haven't personally, my only, I was just talking to Eric about the only time I ever see that outside the Lord's Prayer is if you're like a 90s football fan, remember the old, like, you can see the, the, the ground and the snow and the fog, and then the voiceover guy says, the hallowed ground of Lambeau Field, or whatever. Uh, that's literally the only time that I'm familiar with that word outside of the Lord's Prayer. Now, if you don't like that actual word in your prayer, Jesus didn't use it either, right? He didn't speak English, right? He said something in Aramaic, which both Matthew and Luke translated into Greek, into this word, and when the translators got to that, they translated it as sanctified, most of the time. Right? Most of the time that this word comes to us in English, as you look through the New Testament, it is to be holy, to be set apart. And I don't know why they chose hallowed for this. It has this really nice reverent sound to it. Um, the only potential problem is we may not know what it actually means. So what does it mean? Um, Jesus could have said... God, your name is holy, your name is holy, right? What's the difference between using the word holy, which that sort of means, and that word itself? And as I pick at that a little bit, I think that's actually a distinct difference and actually a profoundly good choice of word if we know what it means because that word is a verb. So something like to uplift the holiness of God's name, right? Which is different than just saying your name is holy because if you think about what that means, it calls us into participation and accountability in the uplifting of God's name. Now, if I ask you this question, I want you to answer this question just as fast as you can in your head, okay? Who is responsible for making God's name holy? Now, if you're like me, when you, if you ask me that question, I very quickly say, God, right? And then my brain says, I feel like Mark's leading me towards saying me or us, But that feels uncomfortable because I'm not sure that's actually an appropriate answer. Are we responsible for the holiness of God's name? Now, I think the easiest way to understand this, because I think the answer is yes, is to flip it upside down. What's the opposite of to hallow God's name, to sanctify God's name, would be to profane God's name. And that we can certainly do. And the Bible gives a couple examples of that. In Proverbs, the author of Proverbs, who was probably a politician because he's pushing for the middle class, and that seems to be the one thing all of the politicians can agree on, is we love the middle class and we want to talk about that. But he says, don't make me poor and don't make me rich. This is his prayer, that I be not full, or rich, and like forget about God. Right? And if you think that you're not in that class of people, probably in a historical context, if you know you're going to eat every day between now and the end of the year, and you have a car, probably historically we're in the category of rich and have a lot, right? And so we're at risk of forgetting that we need God. But what's the other side of this? Make me not poor that I not be in want. Why? Because I might be tempted to steal, and what will I do if I steal as a person of God? I will profane the name of God. Now, that's on an individual basis. There's a story in Ezekiel where the people of God are just living terribly. And so God goes in there and says, Listen, I'm going to judge you for the way that you're living because you're profaning my name. And then it describes them coming out of their land with their tail between their legs because they've been judged. And the people around who are not believers in God are looking at them and saying, Seriously, this is your God and this is the shape you're in? Like, nice God which does what? Like, totally damages the reputation of God. And he says, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name. So yes, God will make his name holy. Which has been profaned among the nations, then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. So we have this partnership with God, to uplift his holy name. And we want to embed that in our prayers, a call to that that calls us to participation and accountability. Now, it's a partnership, but it's not even. The best example I could think of is uh, some friends of ours. We had a, uh, probably the best sports ticket I ever shelled out money for. We lucked into game five, Portland, Oklahoma City. Um, this was when the, the Blazers used to, um, what's it called, playoffs. They used to participate. <laughs> They used to participate in the playoffs. Uh, we don't do that anymore. This is back when they had that Dave Lillard guy. who's was a pretty good player, right? So the Blazers did what they normally do. They played average. And Lillard went off, and it was an amazing game. And we uplifted the name of the Blazers all game. And we wanted them to win, and we wanted to help take them to the next round of the playoffs. And they won that game by three points. Guess, statistically, how many points the Moda Center crowd has worked to the Blazers. Seriously, if you ask the betting people. points. So their home court advantage is worth 3.5 points. So very literally, I and my friends help to uplift the Blazers. If the crowd doesn't show up, they lose that game. So in a very real sense, we help them to the next round of the playoffs, and in a very real sense, that's a ridiculous thing to say. Right? And if you know how that game ended, Lillard hits this amazing shot, right from 40 feet with an all-NBA defender right in his face, and he claps arrogantly goodbye to Oklahoma City because the series is over, and they mob him, and we yelled. And i got to tell you, I've never heard yelling like that. Like, if it's loud, I can't hear my neighbor, but if it's re- I can still hear myself. And if it's really loud, I can't hear myself in my ears, but you can still hear yourself, like, in your head. Like, I stopped cheering and started, like, yelling and stopped yelling and yelling and stuff. I was like, there's literally no difference between <laughs> yelling and not yelling because it was so crazy loud. Point being, we are in a partnership, it's an uneven partnership, with God to uplift the holiness of his name. Okay? Now, I want you to just close your eyes for a second, just reflection, this is not be weird. And I want you to think about your actual prayers. And I want you to ask yourself, the actual words of your prayers... Do you have embedded in your prayers regularly, uplifting the name of God, and then I want to challenge you to find a way to do that regularly, you can open your eyes, Uh, do that regularly in a way that this word does, if we actually use that word, and maybe that word does it for you, but it calls us into accountability and participation, right? If you have just done horribly, because we're meant to follow Jesus, right? But we're also meant to be known to follow Jesus, Right? That's why we don't, when you get baptized all by yourself, that's called a bath. Right? That doesn't do anything. Right? We get baptized how? Publicly. Because it's like this, hey, I'm following Jesus. Right? And then the things that you do and the things that you say and the way that you're known either uplifts the holiness of his name or it profanes it. Right? And you will not always succeed at that. And that's why there is mercy and grace. And also why, and this connects us to the next part of where we're going today, is we need regular forgiveness, right? Not for our sin, but as Jesus says, our sins. Forgive us our debts or our sins as we forgive the debts of others. Now, I've only got one nerdy little slide for you here. So, um, we'll shift down to this next part, because this is something I would call interestingly uninteresting. Um, If you've ever wondered, like, Jesus says debts in Matthew, and he says sins in Luke, which one are we supposed to use? Um, I think if you follow it back, it's actually just one word that Jesus is using. So if you say, well, however you pronounce that word in Aramaic, which is what Jesus spoke most likely, chova, I don't know. Luke heard that and said, oh, I know what that is. That's sin. That's hamartia, right? That's to miss the mark for us not to do according to God's will in the way that we live, in the way that we're thinking, whatever it is, right? Whereas Matthew said, oh, I know what that word means. It's the word debt, right? So in Aramaic, the words sin and debt are the same word. Right, so you could translate them accurately both ways, and then by the time it comes into English, it's sins and debts, and we think maybe he's saying it one way and saying it another. I think he's saying it just the same thing. And I think, as it turns out, the concept of debt and sin like go together to really well define this. Right, this is why God couldn't just say, you have all sinned. I tell you what, we'll just wipe it away, right? Sin incurs a debt. That debt had to be paid by either us or by Jesus, Right. So both concepts kind of come together, but it's just one concept, just the idea of sin. Okay? Now, the second part of this I think is also worth looking at both sides of this because it makes it unmistakable that forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, for we also have forgiven our debtors. Right, So if you think about the way that's written, Jesus is assuming as you're coming to God, which we should do regularly in the, in the rhythm of our life and in the rhythm of our prayers and be asking for forgiveness, we should already be in a position of having forgiven those that have offended us. And that's a high calling. Okay? Now, before we get into that a little bit more, I want to take a step back because I think the way we think about forgiveness today in Western culture is really different than they, the way they would have thought of that. Um, in this pagan Roman like space that Christianity exploded into. If you went in your neighborhood and found the first five people that snarled when you said, are you a Christian? Right? Those five people. And then you said, I just have a question for you. Like, what do you think of the concept of forgiveness? Most of them would say, oh, it's good to forgive. It's a virtue, right? But if you go into the Roman world that they were in. So this is like, students, you guys learn Greek and Roman mythology, right? What are a couple of the characters in Roman mythology? Anybody? Nice work. All right. Good job. So, um, reads Percy Jackson or studied well in school. I don't know which, but nice job. Um, I don't know, Percy Jackson, Greek or Roman? I'm not sure. Okay, so if you remember when. Paul and Barnabas, God does some miracles through them, and they call Barnabas Zeus. They're like, oh, you're in that class of people. So this is a time period where that whole thing, they thought that was real, right? Fire, the sun, love, hate, all of this is explained by this pantheon of gods that are up there, like, sometimes fighting with each other, sometimes in agreement, and we want to honor them. This is their sort of position. And if we're cool enough, like the emperor, maybe we're actually one of them, right? So this is the culture that that they lived in. Um, but what's interesting about that culture as you read about it, which I haven't done extensively, but it's described as an honor and shame culture. So that was a really heavy like idea, is if I'm, if I'm a wealthy person, which means I'm honorable, um, you know, I'm honored and this poor person or invalid or whoever is shamed, but forgiveness was not a virtue in that culture. So if you ask this honored person, like, what do you think of forgiveness? Well, I'm an honorable person. I don't do anything for which I must ask forgiveness. That would be weakness. And then this, this, this shamed person that's b- beneath me, I certainly wouldn't forgive them because they don't. So it wasn't considered a virtue. Right? And Christianity, if you look at the, the stats on it, was about the size of McMinnville, like 100 years after Jesus. So it's like 30,000, 40,000 people. Right? The Jewish people was about Oregon and Idaho combined, so like 7 million Jews. There's this tiny little population of Christians. And then Rome, as a, this pagan culture that Christianity exploded into, in which forgiveness wasn't really a virtue, is about the size of Western U.S., Right, so Montana... No one's really into the Dakotas, you can count those if you want. Cut down, not Texas, and then go west, right? Not geography, but people-wise. That's the pagan world, how big it was, that Christianity exploded into. And then what we have today is kind of this gamish mix of all of that, right? So you can still see this honor and shame culture that we still live in today, right? You just look at politics, even in like 1700s, 1800s, like why did Alexander Hamilton and his son die? Separate incidents, someone's insulted, and so they could sit down, and there could be a confession and maybe forgiveness, and they said, I have a better idea. How about we fight till one of us is dead? Because you have offended my honor, and that's how this works, right? That doesn't sound very Christian, right? It's this mix of this honor and shame culture, but then forgiveness was so radical, as Jesus taught it, that it infected in a good way, like the whole Western world that we live in, but it gets all messed up. Right, because it becomes transactional, and sometimes we buy into that. I find myself doing that with my kids, and this was super convicting for me in terms of reading this, is sometimes I'll take my forgiveness and put it behind my back and tell, not with Savannah, because she's usually doing what's right, but one of my children, (laughs) like, hey... You are in the wrong, and I'm holding my forgiveness, and I'm going wa- to wait. It's conditional. I'm going to wait and see your response, right? And if you're not contrite and you don't respond right, then my forgiveness, maybe it actually isn't applied here, right? And I've learned that from the world, not from Jesus. And I want to make sure that we learn about forgiveness from Jesus. So let's turn to Matthew 18. This will be the longest stretch we read. So stand with me if you are able And we'll read Matthew 18, start in verse 21. This is Jesus really laying out the idea and concept of forgiveness. All right. So Peter came and I'm going to commentate as we read this. So if you get tired, you can sit. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said, all right, I'm going to show you how this works the basis of forgiveness want to teach you about this i don't say to you up to seven times but up to 70 times 7 which is 490 right but what he's really saying is if you're counting you're not doing this right you're not doing this my way okay for this reason the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves When he had begun to settle them, one who owed 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children and all that he had, and repayment to be made. Let me just stop for a second and say, if you're like me, you get a little squeamish anytime the word slave gets read in church. This is really just first century employment. Right, this is, a, this is a, probably like an indentured servant-type situation here. This is not a human who is owned. Humans who are owned do not acu- uh, acu- uh, acquire debt of this size right, with a business partner or whomever it might be. Uh, so the worker fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord said, to, felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. All right, you can be seated. So, a few things to say about this. One is the size of the debt, okay? So, this is, if you do the math, which it's not really the point. I I read somewhere that when he says 10,000, that's like the biggest number you can write in Greek, which this is written in Greek. So, I don't really know what Jesus is saying in terms of numbers here. This is 200,000 years worth of wages. It's roughly the GDP of South Africa, right? This is like... This is like Jeff Bezos' wealth, can't touch this debt, right? And that's the point. Is it's not a number. It's this infinite debt that this man has, okay? And, and, and what's really important to, to see here is what does he bring to the table? Like, what does he come and offer to Jesus in exchange? It's not really an exchange. He just comes and pleads for mercy, right? And at that point... He's forgiven. So the scoreboard at that point reads like him forgiven a zillion, and then on the other side of what he's forgiven is basically negligible, right? And we need to not forget that. That's a really key point in where this story goes, right? If we go bad to, back to my bad analogy of the Blazers, because I somehow only come up with sports analogies, um, the next round of the playoffs, they got swept by the Warriors, And I think the last time they played the Warriors, they lost by like 53, 54 points. So let's combine that and play it out the same way, right? So they're down 3-0, they're down 53, Lillard's got the ball, we're all cheering, and he makes an impossible shot, and he arrogantly claps goodbye to the Warriors because this series is over. Also, and his teammates rush him and say, wow, that was an amazing shot, and we cheer so loudly, you can't hear yourself think because the shot was so difficult, right? And the Warriors would say, Um, Do you idiots not know what the score is? Like, your season's over, you lost by 50, right? That would be a completely irrational response to that situation. And that's what happens here to this guy. If we continue on in verse 28, that worker went out and found a fellow worker who owed him 100 denarii. So this is a car loan. This is is not trivial. This is real money. but It's trivial compared to the debt, right? So this is the guy who bought the car from you. He's going to pay you on time, and he's late, okay? He seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe me. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow workers saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt. Because you pleaded with me, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Now, in this analogy, this parable that he gives, it doesn't make any sense unless we identify with the one whose debt is enormous, right? Infinite that God has forgiven. And that is also part of the problem with how the world sees our relationship with God. Right? The world says, like, eh, in the grand scheme of things, like, I will admit that I'm a sinner, but I mean, come on, like, I'm not that bad. Right? And that's part of understanding this story and understanding forgiveness appropriately is understanding that that's not the way that it is. Maybe some of you have had a situation in your life where somebody committed an offense of like telling a surprise that they weren't supposed to tell. Right, so birthday party or some information that's a fun little surprise and you just can't help yourself. And so you tell, right? So where would you rank that on the list of sins? Eh, not that bad, right? So that's what Robert Hansen did. Anyone heard of Robert Hansen? He just died two months ago in prison. So he had to negotiate his way out of a death sentence to get life in prison for telling a surprise. He went to the Russian government and said, oh, those two guys you think work for you? Yeah, they're U.S. spies. Right? So he, he gave up that surprise. And, oh, we've got a surprise for you guys. We're tunneling under one of your government buildings to put surveillance information? Surprise! Right? So all he did was the same thing. But what, what category is that actually in? It's treason, right? It's, technically, I think it was espionage, whatever. Right? Like, you've betrayed your country, and that's a serious crime. Right? So for us to properly understand our sin, right, if Don sins against me in some way and I'm offended which may happen eventually, we'll see, right? And instead, instead of dealing with that appropriately, if I go to Bill and assassinate his character instead of dealing with it and I say, hey listen, you know about this guy? Like he's seriously trouble. And, I, and what am I doing? I'm judging Don and I'm exacting revenge on Don by what I'm telling Bill. Now, my sin against Don is actually not that big. Like we can go out to coffee and we can talk through that and like we're in good shape, right? But what's my sin against God? In judging and exacting revenge, I have climbed up into what I think is an empty throne room and put the robe on me and sat in the seat of judgment and the seat of, like, the sovereign almighty and put the crown on, which doesn't fit very well, and grabbed the scepter and said, I am the sovereign today. I will judge him and I will exact revenge on him. And that is God's job, right? So in doing that, I'm committing treason against the sovereign of the universe. That's your sin, right? In part, right? Among other things. Like, that's what we've done, is our offense to God is this infinite thing. But as it points out here, when we beg for mercy and repent and decide that we're going to follow Jesus, like, he forgives all that. And then what's the scoreboard? And we need to remember what that score is as we interact with our fellow people. So, that view of this allows us to see it properly, so even when the sin is this monstrously big thing, from our own perspective, that we can forgive. I think a really good example of this, and some of you have maybe heard this story, but it's totally worth repeating, um, is the story of Cory Tinbum. So, Dutch Christian, right, hiding Jews, caught by the Nazis, thrown in concentration camps, and that is awful, right? The... The way they're treated is awful. Her sister dies there. She gets out, and she's teaching on the gospel, the forgiveness that God offers. At the end of one of these meetings, I'm just going to read this excerpt here. She saw a man walking towards her, and she recognized him. This man had been a guard at Ravensbrück Concentration Camp, where she was sent. And here's what she said. It came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of our dresses and our shoes in the center of the floor... The shame of walking naked past this man every day. My sister's frail form ahead of me. I remembered the leather crop swinging from his belt. Now here he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message for a loin, German. How good is it to know that, as you say, all of our sins are at the bottom of the sea. He then told her that he had been a guard. So he admits it. I was a guard at Ravensbrook, and I turned to Christ and sought forgiveness for all the cruel things that I did there. And here's what she says. I stood there, I whose sin had every day to be forgiven, and I couldn't. Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? She stood there, his hand thrust out, her hand unmoving. But then listen to what she says. But she remembered what she knew about Christian forgiveness. She knew she had to do it. She had seen many people after World War II who could not, and through their bitterness remained invalids. She also knew, and I really like this, that forgiveness is not an emotion, it's an act of the will. So silently she prayed, Jesus help me, I can lift my hand, I can do that much. So the sin against her was huge, but properly understanding the gospel and what God had done for her, she was able to overcome that. Now, before we talk a little bit more about her, I want to focus on him, because he represents the other half of the verse, right? Forgive us our debts, that part, as we forgive our debtors. Right, so he had realized, my sins are massive, but they're not too big for the cross. Right, so he came to Jesus in faith, repented of his sins, right, and here he was. So he was able to live out 1 John 1.9, which says, if we confess our sins to God... He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, right? He did that. And then he continued further, and what the Bible tells us about forgiveness is confess your sins to one another, right? He didn't hide in the back, right? He came right up to her and said, I was one of those who did these awful things to your people. He confessed his sins to her, which I think it's not really like a, at the crux of what we're talking about today, but I, just, I think it's worth focusing on a little bit because I think when you see destruction in relationships like marriages, when you see destruction in, in churches within, it's because we don't heed this. And Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, if you go back a chapter, he talks about this in Matthew 5, 23, right? He says, if, and he's talking to Jews, right? So if you're, at, if you're involved in this act of worship that is about your own forgiveness, which is a, like a public thing, you're out doing that, right? And there you remember that your brother has something against you. What does that mean? It means you've sinned against them, right? They have something against you. Finish it up and take care of it eventually? No. He's pretty adamant about this, which I have a typo. uh, Go, be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and finish business, right? That's a pretty high calling of like, hey, if you're in the middle of something and you realize that someone has something against you, go to them. And I think that's something for me, in my marriage, in my relationship with my kids, within the church, like when we sin... It's so valuable for us to heed what Jesus says and to go make things right. Because I think also, you know, you think about the Bible says, don't put a stumbling block in front of someone, right? So if I go to someone who I know struggles with alcohol and I say, hey, come have lunch and we'll serve alcohol, like that's a terrible idea. But you know what? We have all been in seasons of being drunk on unforgiveness, right? We've all been there. And what a gift it is for someone when we offend them, instead of being cowardly and just sort of letting it go away, to go and to confess to our brothers and our sisters, our family members, whatever, that we wronged them, it also frees them up to much more easily say and and to practice this this pattern of forgiveness. Listen to what happens. Um, So in this story, he does this, right? He says, hey, like, this is what I did. And if he hadn't, maybe she wouldn't have gotten to the point where she would have forgiven. Maybe she would have gone home. And in the quietness of her heart, she would have said, she would have been convicted and said, I forgive. But listen to what happened because she was able to follow through with it there in the moment. And so, this is uh, Corey's words. And so, woodenly, mechanically, I obeyed and thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me and as i did an incredible thing took place the current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm sprang into our joined hands and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being bringing tears to my eyes i forgive you brother i cried with all my heart i had never known god's love so intensely as i did then so that experience for her would have been robbed from her had she not been able to obey God and forgive in, that, in the moment. But it also points out that it's, it's really hard. It's a hard thing for us to do. Now, you could say, but that guy did repent. So what if there is no repentance? And in just kind of searching around different places, I did find people who would say, listen, as a Christian, love is universal. Forgiveness requires repentance. Is that true? Well, if we look at Jesus' words in, is it Matthew or Mark? Put that one up there. Whenever you, this is Jesus. So he's going to address this. Whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone. So your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you your transgressions. And this feeds right into the Lord's Prayer. When you stand praying, our Father who is in heaven, like may your name be praised, right? Forgive us our sins, and then we should be convicted. Oh, man, I haven't forgiven something. Like, as you stand praying, if anyone for anything is on your heart and you haven't forgiven it, that's God's call to you, without exception, without qualification, that we're to model the forgiveness that he gave us. It's a high calling, but it's clearly the approach that Jesus has for us. Now, there's, there, there can be a piece of that that's a little bit unsettling. So I do want to talk um, about... Exceptions, two like caveats to think about. And one is that forgiveness and relational reconciliation, they're not the same thing, right? So the other piece of this is justice. God wants us to pursue justice. So if somebody did something horrible to me, like did something terrible to one of my children, right? If they're unrepentant, like in in Corey um, Tinboom's, like that guy's repentant, but if they're not repentant, and I'm unsafe around them, whatever. There are situations where relational reconciliation takes repentance on the other person's behalf. But, but it doesn't put us in a position where we always have to forgive. But relational reconciliation, that's a separate issue. Um, that I'm not going to go into too much here, but I just want to make sure I mentioned that. Um, and the other is justice. I mean, as you read the Bible, like, God is a God of justice. He wants us to be a people of justice, right? I want Don to do his job and apply justice when appropriate um, as a police officer, right? If you don't, then your society tends to unravel. Um, I could bring someone from Portland up and they could speak to the fact that that tends to unravel if we don't have justice. We'll skip that for today. Um, but relational reconciliation and justice, those, those are, are, are two things that we don't we don't have to ignore those as part of, as we work with people on, forgiveness. Um, I have another story about forgiveness that ties that together that I, I want to wrap up with eventually. Um, but I think it is also tempting to have these big stories about forgiveness that can be inspirational to us, right? And then when we are really, really wronged, We can draw on those to draw strength um, in our own forgiveness. But I think the other side of the spectrum is something that we struggle with as well, which is when sins can be really little. And I think um, over in this section, like between siblings, brother, brother, sister, sister, brother, sister, between kids and parents, between parents within marriage relationships, um, one of the, I think the errors that we can make when it comes to forgiveness is we can mistake Tolerance for forgiveness. Meaning, if um, my sin against my wife, my wife's sin against me, is this trivial little thing, but, but it's enough, right? There's something there. Like, and, and this goes to this, this rhythm of regularly asking for forgiveness and offering forgiveness, right? Instead of that, we can let these things stack up as these little offenses that we don't forgive, we trivialize enough, or we tolerate enough to say, Like, I'll tolerate that because I love you, but there's a distinct difference. It's just a good thing to, like, and it's just helped me think through this um, as I deal with my own life, maybe with my children, but like, the people that you're around a lot. Like, that can be an error that we make, and when you watch the damage that can be done to marriage relationships or friendship relationships or sibling relationships over time, because the idea of forgiving is sort of traded out for just, like, tolerance. Like, I can take on the burden of the sin that you've committed against me instead of actually going through this spiritual exercise of realizing that I need to forgive and not exact revenge on somebody, right? If we're ever in a place of vengeance, then we know we're not getting this right. And sometimes that idea of justice and vengeance they can be really hard to tell the difference between, right? When someone should go to prison or should have something happen to them as a natural consequence in justice, and I think the the way you can easily tell the difference between that is just one word as a filter, and that word is love, right? If someone commits an offense against you and you're forgiving them, if in your heart you don't find yourself able to root for their well-being and what's good for them in terms of loving them as a person even as they've offended you significantly um that's a really good a filter between when justice is being applied and a parenting that can be a really tough thing right we, we're in a position of needing to administer justice to our kids and not revenge and how do we know the difference between the two when we're acting in love i think that that's the filter to, to tell the difference between the two um i was asking myself What is the best example that I could think of of forgiveness that I've sort of not experienced myself, but just been around in my sphere of influence of people um, that I can learn from? When I got done with... um, school in Oregon. I went to school in Connecticut for a year. And it was probably, not probably, it was the lowest point for me in terms of my faith journey, um, just kind of getting my brain beat up a little bit by a secular university um, for four years um, and all of that. And, And God specifically took me there, not for education, but to get grounded in his word by taking me to this little church with these amazing people that are now lifelong friends of mine. Um, the pastor and his wife kind of took me in, they're like my East Coast parents, um, and we stay in touch to this day. Um, but I had, I had interacted a little bit with the pastor's wife in her story, in that she became saved as an adult, and within like that first year of being saved, had something happen to her that put her in this category of needing to wrestle through forgiveness in a really, really big way. Um, and since Sunday school is closed, and we have second through fifth graders, um, we'll keep this as PG as possible. Uh, she, I mean, she had a really terrible experience. She was pu- actually pumping gas one day, and she got abducted um, just out of the clear blue. And the story ends with someone in the woods trying to kill her and choking her to death. And God sent some drunken teenagers, of all things, along and l- quite literally saved her life. Um, and the greatest fear you have as a husband or a dad um, or, a wife, uh, or a woman, like, it was one of those stories. It was terrible. And so they caught the guy, he never repented. He never even admitted to being wrong. And justice was served, and so he went to jail for several years. Um, but that left her in this place of, what do I do with this? Right? What do I, like, how, how do I work through this? And so I called her a couple weeks before preaching on forgiveness and just said, Linda, can you tell me your story? And, um, and I was really careful about that, and I want to be really careful in telling the story as a guy. It's my friend's story, so I'll try to... Um, tell it as she would if she was here, but um, it's amazing talking to her about it because she doesn't even break stride in telling it. She's like, I tell this story all the time. Like, it's been super, super helpful in me impacting the life of other people that have gone through trauma, that have had things happen to them. Um, and, but she sat there in a moment of, what do I do with this? Right? Like, And, and she felt compelled, probably much faster than I could have ever hoped to have been, To write this gentleman a letter. And she wrote him a letter. And she preached the gospel to him. If you knew Linda, she's a little crazy. She was actually preaching the gospel to him as he was abducting her. So um, she's like all out for Jesus all the time, no matter what the situation. And she trusted God to use that situation. And he did. Um, But she ended up preaching this guy the gospel in a letter that said, hey, listen, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. Like we're all in that same boat. And you've done something like terribly evil to me. And and I forgive you. And she was able to work through that and to, and to forgive him. Um, and the reason I tell that and the Corey Tinboom story is as I, as I was talking to her, it was like amazing to me how much of a parallel there was for the two in that I said, Linda, did you, did you have this emotional compulsion as this parable says of like, man, my sin is so bad? and God has forgiven it, and so therefore, I feel naturally compelled to forgive the sin, or did you just obey? And she said, oh, there's no emotion to it. It was just like I knew God had called me to forgive no matter what, and so I forgave. And she said, but the second I did and gave into that in my heart, like the scales fell off the eyes of my heart, and I was able emotionally to see this for what it was. Very similar to what happened to Corey Tinboom in that it wasn't emotional compulsion, as she said. It's an act of the will. And I think that is worth thinking about really deeply if you're holding on to bitterness towards anyone. Is if you wait around to feel motivated and inspired enough to forgive, that's not what God has for us. What he asks you is trust me. Like this is not only because I've called you to it, but it's for your good, right? And I know there are people, I'm sure, out here who have stories that if you got here, up here and told it, it would make us weep, right? Because life is full of pain, and we betray our fellow people, and in our family, there's like deep, deep hurt, and we don't ever want to trivialize that, right? But God calls us to that, and he also asks us, like, will you trust me in that? And Aaron, you guys can come back up as we close, There are kind of three pieces to this. One is, you can hear this, and you can can hear this sort of motivational speech about forgiveness. And if you've never actually received forgiveness from God... You can actually still use this to improve your life, but that's not the message, right? Forgiveness is not meant just to be this therapeutic thing that says, hey, research studies show, you know, if you do this, your life will be better. It's true, because trusting God's way, even if you're not a child of God, right, is a good thing, right, but first and foremost, like, plead to God for mercy if you never have, and then once that score is settled, then we can live in light of this, in forgiveness in our own lives. And the first piece of that is to understand it intellectually, right? Does God call us to forgive without qualification, without exception, even if the sin is really big, even if it's not repented of? And that's the trip that we're taking today through God's Word, is to say, yeah, like, that's what Jesus did for us, and that's what he commands us to do in our lives. And it's not easy, and we fail, and sometimes it's this moment in time, and the scales fall off your eyes, and your life is forever different, and sometimes you gotta go back to it, and you gotta trust God, and it takes time, and it takes repetition, right? The, the other thing that struck me um, as we close here, just in talking to Linda about her story, is she said, you know, I, I think it was maybe the DA in the case or somebody, the investigating officer, I don't know, um, who said, hey, you need to go to the support group, and again, I, I'm just telling her story, um, which I'm a little uncomfortable doing. Um, but she went to the support group, and she told her story. So it was a support for group for people who had gone through what she had gone through. And they, she told her story, and they were really, really angry at her. And they asked her, "Please don't ever come back," because she got up and told her story of forgiveness. And I said, you know, it's because it's int- she said, I've never been in a room filled with more hateful and resentful people, which just broke her heart, like, looking at these people. And, and as I was reading the end of the parable, I said, you know, does that, did you feel like them being in, like, a torture prison was, like, a pretty good, like, analogy? And she said, yeah, that's, that's what I escaped from. And in this, in this parable, Um, that's how it ends. And the Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And that's maybe talking about what happens after this life. But even within this life, if we live a life that lacks forgiveness and instead chooses bitterness, right? That's what we end up is like a prison of our own making. And God says there's a way out of that. And that way is through forgiveness. So I hope as we like reflect on that, That we can just like think through that in our own lives. And one, like, are we living that way? And then two, the whole point of the Lord's Prayer, right, is to embed these words regularly in our prayers, right? Whether they're the exact words. The people have said forever, right? That's probably the most quoted thing um, in all of the Bible because people have said it exactly word for word. And you can do that if that speaks to your heart or to put that into your own words and but to embed those concepts in our regular rhythm of how we serve God um, I think is really important for us. And that's um, what Jesus has for us for our own good.